Parenting is often lived in the extremes. It's either great joy or chaotic overwhelm. In one moment you're nailing it and the next you're losing your cool. I want to help you find your way to the messy middle, to a place of balance. You see, balance is a verb, not a state of being. It is a thing you do, not a thing you are. It is an action, a process, a series of micro-corrections that you make each and every day to keep yourself feeling centered. We are never truly balanced. We are engaged in the process of balancing. Hello, I'm Dr. Laura Froyan, and this is the Balanced Parent Podcast, where overwhelmed, stressed out, and disconnected parents go to find tools, mindset shifts, and practices to help them stop yelling at the people they love and start connecting on a deeper level, all delivered with heaping doses of grace and compassion. Join me in conversations that will help you get clear on your goals and values and start showing up in your parenting, your relationships, your life with open-hearted authenticity and balance. Let's go. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of the Balanced Parent Podcast. I'm Dr. Laura Froyan, and this week we're joined by a guest, Candace Curtis, who is an OT, an occupational therapist, and she is a sensory integration specialist. And I'm really excited to have her here so we can pick her brain about how we can help our kids who maybe have some sensory differences. So Candace, welcome to the show. Can you tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do? Sure. Yeah. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. So yeah, like you said, I'm an occupational therapist and I initially had started with a social work degree and I worked with a ton of different families that way and just really, really wanted to get in a lot more of my sciences that I really had kind of missed out with social work and went back to school to be an occupational therapist. And so we get to learn all sorts of things about the brain and how the body works and how to analyze tasks and really try to figure out like what it takes to be able to do something and a lot of physical disabilities kinds of things and mental health kinds of things and like pathophysiology and all of those really fun classes too. So I mean, then a ton of research as well. And so it was absolutely fantastic to be able to kind of get that whole background and really be able to use both that science and like working with people all together. And so it is just such a huge, huge passion of mine. And so basically I got my degree in it afterwards, me and my husband ended up having two boys and my oldest one has autism and just a lot of sensory problems just in general. And then my youngest son, you know, just has developed and everything has just come so easily and naturally to him in so many ways. And so being a parent has given me like so much more perspective and like when I'm working with people and things like that. And it's always been interesting for me to be an OT and like be trained on how to really work with these kids and kind of analyze everything that they're doing and working on their development. And then having my own child that really has a lot of difficulties just with doing things that a lot of other kids are already doing. And so like trying to figure out sometimes like knowing when to wear my OT hat and how to like also wear my mom hat because like it's two very different things. Like I would kind of drive myself crazy if all the time I was just analyzing my son, like, and I wouldn't be able to just be his mom, you know, but obviously I've learned so many great things that can help him. And so like, it's always been a 
journey, I guess is a good way to say it, on how to do both of those things. And being able to do both of those things has really helped me to be so much more compassionate with parents when I'm actually working with them. Because when they come back to me and they're like, oh my goodness, like I could not find the time to be able to do, you know, this and this thing during my week. Like it's just been a really crazy week. Like I get it. I know how full all of the plates are of all these parents when they're trying to do not only what a typical parent would need to do, but like extra stuff because their child is having a hard time with things or just things that take longer, you know? Mm -hmm. And kind of just recognizing how different the clinic environment is from the home environment. Like I know that I can control everything in the clinic and at home, like you have several kids running around and you're trying to do laundry or cook dinner or, you know, all of these different things. And so just really understanding that what works in the clinic very well might not work at home. And so that has been really huge for me as an occupational therapist and a mom and really kind of understanding the difference between ideal things to do with your child. And then a whole separate thing is kind of what's realistic to be able to do with your child. And so a lot of times parents will be like, you know, tell me a circumstance and I have to kind of stop because I know the therapist would recommend one thing and, um, but being a parent and just knowing what's realistic, what might be a different thing. And so kind of talking to them about, you know, this would be what's ideal, like in really getting to find out like what works for their family and what their situations are like. So that way those recommendations can be, you know, specific to that family and really work for that family. Yeah. I love that. I love that idea too of kind of like, okay, so this is what I, you know, ideal would be, but done is better than perfect. So what's good enough, right? Yeah. Oh, completely. So, you know, a lot of families come to me with really intense, really sensitive kids, very up and down kids. You know, I have training and background in working with explosive kids or, you know, strong-willed kids or spirited kids, whatever label you want to put on them. But parents come to me in that way and they are surprised often when I ask, is your child working with an OT? Have they been evaluated? Have they been assessed? And I, so I think that there's lack of awareness of what an OT can do for your kid. And I kind of want to know, like, when should parents start thinking about, like, I mean, so most of us know about like OT in the context of school. So like if your child's teacher is noticing some grip issues with their pencil, they might go see an OT. But what are some other circumstances where a parent might think like, hmm, maybe an evaluation with an OT would be helpful here? Yeah, that is such a good question. And I almost forget sometimes how a lot of people really don't know what occupational therapy is just because like I've learned and obviously I like that's what I do all the time. Because so often I hear people be like, oh, like, why do you need to work with a kid? Like they don't have a job. And so like, I hear it a lot. And so it is a really good question. And I think the biggest thing working with an occupational therapist, some of the things that we look at is basically, are they able to do what they need to be able to do during their day? And so if you start noticing that your child isn't doing certain things that other peers their age are doing, or that every time that you go somewhere, transitions are really hard, or maybe they're having a hard time getting dressed in the morning, or, oh my gosh, we just work on so many different areas. So let me maybe say like what we assess, and that might kind of help too. So when a child first comes into the clinic, some of the different things that I'm assessing and kind of looking at to figure out what their strengths are and what some of maybe the more challenging areas are is I'm really looking at their coordination. 
And so we do a lot of different tests with that. I'm looking at their strength. I'm looking at how they're processing all of the sensory information, like all that information that they get from their world and how is their brain actually taking that information in and making sense of it. Because so much of our behavior that we end up having can be reflected in how well our brain is doing that. And that's a whole different section kind of all by itself. I'm also looking at like how well their eyes are working together to be able to do things, their coordination with their hands and how strong their hands are. I'm looking at their social skills. I'm looking at their play skills. I'm looking at how they are able to sequence different activities and, you know, using dressing for an example, like are they able to complete all the steps to be able to get their clothes and be able to put their clothes on and be able to do the buttons and all of those different things. And so we're looking at so many different areas and trying to get a really big picture view of what's going on with the child and what is affecting their ability to do those things that they might be having a hard time in. So I know that's really broad, but does that that help? It totally helps. So my oldest goes to see an OT and we get support on a number of different things, but the, I think what's been so helpful for me to think about it in this way is that, so she has like some, they call them retained reflexes, some things that didn't kind of integrate properly as she was growing. And so things are more effortful for her. So for lots of kids, they, things are reflexive that are not for her. And so she has to put more effort into those things. And when she engaged in a task where she is having to put more effort into those things, it's not a bottomless well of effort and regulation and energy and resources. And so if her resources and energy and effort are being taken up by these things that for many people are reflexive, that they don't have to think about, that are not effortful, her effort is being taken up by them, then she has less resources available to her for things like emotional regulation. And so things are just harder for her. And she might be able to be successful at the tasks she's being asked to do, but afterwards she's exhausted and more likely to lash out, for example, at her sister, at her parent. And that's where we are seeing so much benefit of OT in our daily lives. It's not that she's necessarily not getting upset with us as much, but she just has more resources and more regulation available to her because some of these other underlying things are becoming easier and smoother for her and less effortful. So she has more to give in her daily life. Oh yes, completely. Like really what we're doing in OT is really trying to look at all of the foundational skills because like if you think of things like a pyramid where all of the foundational skills are at the bottom and then as they go up the pyramid, that's when like higher level skills are happening and like higher level learning is happening more at the top of the pyramid. We're really looking at do they have all of those foundational skills and are there some that need to be filled in? And so like what you're talking about with the reflexes, we look at during all of our evaluations, because like you said, if they're typically integrated when a child is a baby and as they're first like starting to develop, but sometimes that doesn't happen and it's all sorts of different reasons. Yeah. Like my daughter didn't crawl, for example, she moved from like tummy crawling, like army crawling to pulling up to stand and cruising furniture. She mm-hmm. maybe crawled for maybe a, a week, maybe like four days. She crawled up on four, all fours, but then she quickly moved on from that. And yeah. I mean, and crawling is a an, an really important thing for crossing the midline, right? And, yeah. Oh, completely. Yeah. Right. And I, like on the outside, she looks to an untrained eye like mine. She looks typical, like all of the things that she's doing look normal, but they are more effortful for her. And 
and an Mm -hmm. OT can see that they are, you know, in a way that I never could looking at her. Yeah. Well, and it's so interesting because you're right. Like you look at her and you're like, well, she walks and she talks and, you know, Mm -hmm. and like so many doctors I've heard too been like, well, it's okay that they don't crawl because they learned how to walk. And so it's okay. But like crawling for an example is one great way that just during development, like those reflexes are actually getting integrated because they're moving both sides of their body, you know, in a reciprocal back and forth pattern. And so like really looking at that and you're so completely right. Those kids are working so much harder to be able to do, let's say doing a worksheet during school and having to start on one side and going across like that can be so hard. And so often I hear about kids that you know, maybe they're having a hard time and melting down at school because it is really hard. Or sometimes they hold it together at school because they have that pressure of, you know, the teacher and peers and not wanting to get in trouble. And then they get home and they just like lose it and melt down because they have been working so incredibly hard. Absolutely. That's totally what's always happened in our house. And luckily I knew that that was what was happening, that she was holding it together at school and she was coming home and just like emptying out the backpack of just stuff she'd stored up all day, just like shaking it out. (laughs) You all can't see me, but I'm like emptying out a backpack, like visually, like that's what she would do, like all over us, all over her family. And knowing this lets us tap into compassion for their experience, right? So knowing that this life is more effortful for them and that they only have so much to give. And then, you know, they've been holding together all day, like lets us tap into compassion for that experience, right? Yeah. Well, and understanding, I think, is always the very first step in knowing what to do with your kid, like understanding what they're going through and like why they react and just behave in general is just so, so powerful as a parent. Hey there. If you're loving learning about how to bring more peace and intention to your stressful times, I'm wondering what it would feel like to take this learning to the next level in some of my courses. Well, this is a wonderful time to do that if you've been thinking about it, because my annual birthday sale is here. This year I'm turning 37, and as usual, I'm giving you all 37% off of my courses and programs, so you can check out the sale and all of the amazing deals you can get the sale starts now and goes through cyber monday so go check it out at laurafroyan.com slash birthday now back to the show Okay, so I have a question from one of my Balanced Parenting community members. So from a mom named Stephanie, and she's asking about her child who is sensory seeking. And maybe after I ask the question, we can talk a little bit about what sensory seeking and what sensory avoiding is, like what that means for folks who are listening, because folks who are listening might have a sensory seeking or avoiding kid and not even know that there's a word for it, but there is. So Stephanie says, truthfully, I find his sensory seeking the hardest part of parenting. I get triggered by the behavior and feel out of my league. When his sensory seeking behaviors is, are in full force, that's when I start to say things like, oh my gosh, just stop or Ugh, why are you doing that? And then I feel bad because I don't want him to get the impression that he's too much and get a negative voice in his head around this. I also feel like I am constantly blocking his body from hurting mine and it's exhausting. And I chose this question because I hear this from parents all the time. And I experience it myself as a parent. So Candace, can you help us understand like, 
what is going on for these kids? Why are they doing that? Like what's happening in their body? that's driving them to do these things. So it's like my daughter will all of a sudden just like get in my face and like just lay on me. We've worked it out, you know, that she needs a big squeeze then. She has some sensory need at that point in time. But like, what, why are they doing that? What's going on in the body? Can you help parents understand? Yeah, definitely. That is a really great question. And I do, I hear that a lot from parents. And so to kind of first start off by explaining a little bit more about like, if you are thinking of like sensory seeking or just sensory avoiding, like you were saying is basically the way that our brain gets all of the information that it uses is through our senses, right? So like we have our five senses that everyone hears about that's touch, taste, smell, seeing, hearing. And then we also have three other senses that we don't hear about as often. And so one of those is called the proprioceptive sense. And that is the sense where we can tell where our body is in relation to like each one of its parts. Like, so that's how when we close our eyes, we know where our foot is in relation to the rest of our leg or our hand or those types of things. So that gives us a lot of information about our body. And then we have the vestibular sense, which gives us information about where we are in space. And it's like the motion detector for our brains. And so it can tell when we start and when we stop, what position our head is in, if we're upside down or right side up, and gives us all of that information. And so the reason why I explain that is a lot of times when we think of sensory seeking, a lot of times they're seeking out either more movement, and that can be like when we just see a lot of activity in a child, or maybe they're seeking out a lot more deep pressure for more of that like deep tactile proprioceptive information that just very calming to our bodies to be able to get all of that input into our proprioceptive system and through all of our receptors. And so they're trying to get like more hugs and more of that deep pressure to kind of help calm down their system. And so our brains basically take all of this information and have to bring it in and organize it all and actually put it in all of the right spots. And so our brain can be better at organizing some of the information from some of the senses, and then it can be not so good at organizing and making sense out of some of the other senses. And so your child is basically trying to get what their brain needs essentially. And it's amazing how good kids are at doing this and how like watching their behavior really tells us so much about kind of what their world is like internally. And so a lot of times when they're like just moving around a lot, they're trying to get that more intense movement. And so often I see like kids hanging upside down, watching TV, and that's just way more intense movement and vestibular input into that vestibular sense. And so that's them trying to seek that out. I like to think about in terms of my child and all children is that there's this innate wisdom that children have in knowing what they need. They are not necessarily skilled in asking for it in the right way or knowing exactly how to get it, but they know what they need. And so they're seeking it out. Like when, for example, my daughter has some seeking and some avoiding that she does, but when she is overwhelmed and heightened emotionally, she will cover her ears and her eyes Mm -hmm. to limit sensory input. And it is very easy as a parent to read that as disrespect, to read that as a behavioral issue, when in reality, it is her innate wisdom. 
her sense of what she needs to feel balanced, you know? Yeah. Oh, completely. When I think that so often, like we think that either they're sensory seekers or they're sensory avoiders. And we think that like they're either or, but I went through the different systems to really point out that like one system can be working great and one system not so great. And this is extremely common where they're seeking out a ton of movement, but they can't stand a lot of different touch. And so Mm -hmm. like we work a lot on like a lot of feeding issues in a lot of those cases, because obviously your tactile system is, you know, used a ton when it comes to eating and things like that. And so they are seeking out that vestibular information, but they're trying to avoid all of that tactile or touch. And so you see that a lot with kids. And so being able to understand your kid and how their, you know, brain is working and actually organizing that information is huge to be able to know like what to do to really support your child for sure. Yeah. Okay. So that leads me to another question that I consistently have. So it's my understanding that there are some type of input that can be really grounding and soothing for some kids and that all kids are different in kind of what grounds and soothes them. And then there's some input that kind of like, I don't know, kind of ramps them up and brings them up. And again, that's different too. So how do then parents figure out, like as an example, like when my child is really like something that winds her up is jumping like on a trampoline. Like that's something that like she really enjoys, really loves, but it like brings her higher and she can't like when she's doing it, then she's almost like in a frenzy. And so then some swinging brings her back down and grounds her. But like, I have the help of an OT who's helping me figure those things out and helping her tune into her body and know what she needs and and like what kind of input she can use to move her body in the way that it needs to go to, to be successful in whatever kind of expectations she has. But like those of us who don't have access to an OT or maybe whose kids, you know, it's just a little bit like I, cause I would imagine that like, this is a spectrum, right? All children can benefit from getting in touch with what their systems need. I feel like that was a really broad question, but feel free. No, super good. So, and I do want to say that, like, I remember when I first learned about sensory processing and I was like, cause it all just came kind of naturally to, you know, like most of us can integrate all this information through our senses so naturally. And so when we have kids that do have a harder time doing this, it is so important to like really go through and kind of think of it all. So What I want to say, even before I start to explain that, I want to say like all of our nervous systems are different. So keep this in mind. There's no cookie cutter approach for sure. And in fact, one great example is if you had like one of those tactile kind of balls or squishy ball and we all passed it around in a big circle and we had like different kinds, we'd all probably pick a different kind that was our favorite. Like all of our nervous systems are just wired different. So keep that in mind. But I'll go through kind of the different sensory systems and kind of say what typically is really either relaxing and soothing or will like ramp people up. And so when you're using these different strategies, it's really important to keep in mind, we're not always trying to calm down our children. Like sometimes in different situations, like we want our kids to be calm and focused when it's time to say do academics, but we want them to be awake and like ready to play when it's time to be out at recess or, you know, you're mm-hmm. at a family outing or whatever. And then we want to wind down when it's time to go to bed. Right. And so there's ways that you can pick different activities to be able to affect how your body feels and same with your child. So 
If we start off with hearing, for example, so a lot of times we hear like Mozart is used a lot to be able to kind of help with calm and focusing. And so that is a great strategy to use if your child has a hard time with that or one that I love. It's free on Amazon Prime. It's called Sacred Earth Drums. And it just has a nice rhythmic steady beat. And that is just really helpful for a lot of kids or using a metronome is another one. And so that can be super helpful. And then of course, like music is an easy one as far as getting you more alert and wound up. Like obviously if we listen to really fast music, that is going to change how we feel and how alert we feel or like how fast we clean the house or whatever it is that we're doing when we're listening to music. So um, sound is a really easy one to use. And then touch, usually like soft things is very calming, cold things. And so drinking like a cold smoothie or just any cold kind of a drink, especially through a straw and like a crazy straw makes it even harder to be able to drink. You have that coldness that is really relaxing to the body. And then on top of it, you have all of that deep pressure and you get your muscles are working harder, which taps into the proprioceptive sense again. And so that can be a great way to calm your body down. But then things that are more alerting are like the sour sprays, bitter taste, those kinds of things are a lot more alerting. And let's see, we use a lot of like chewy kinds of foods, drinking from straws, like thicker things like applesauce and yogurt and things for calming things. So those are some different things for taste and tactile. And then for vestibular things, usually anything that is rhythmic and moving in the same direction. So like rocking or swinging and sometimes trampoline can be very like relaxing for kids. And sometimes with kids, it can change and be more erratic as far as like how fast they're jumping and things. And so it really amps up their system and they become a little bit more dysregulated. And that's kind of what it sounded like you were describing with your daughter. And so that one, you kind of have to just see how they do. And then Anything where like their head is inverted and they're spinning and things like that, that is usually very like alerting for kids and like really wakes them up. And sometimes if they have a hard time, especially processing that vestibular information, it's like amazing. They can be like bouncing off the walls like crazy children if they end up getting too much vestibular input. It's kind of amazing to see actually. Why does that Um, happen? Like why does the bouncing off the walls just like wild happen? You know, if they're having too much and then it like they can't integrate it all. You know what I mean? Yeah. Well, and it's really like all of that information as it's coming in through that vestibular sense and going to the brain. It's like a conveyor belt. If you picture that and like the information needs to move along like really smoothly. And instead it just like there's a kink in the conveyor belt and like everything gets blocked up and they just can't like process it all right. And so then their whole brain just is disorganized and they're all over the place. Okay. I'm thinking about a specific client of mine who's got twins who get ramped into that space right before bedtime. And she is really struggling to get them to a place where they can settle for sleep you know, and I know like, obviously you can't make any specific recommendations and they are working with an OT, but is there like something that in general, typically we can do like when kids are in that place where they've gotten so much information, they can't process it. It's just kind of spinning around and they're spinning around Mm -hmm. like that we can do to ground them, to bring them down. Yeah. 
So the sense that I really like always kind of point parents to and that I use the most often, especially if they have a hard time with processing that vestibular information is using proprioceptive kinds of things. And so think deep pressure and heavy work for their muscles. And so like bear hugs or sitting in beanbag chairs and cuddling up is really helpful. That's where like heavy weighted blankets and that's like deep tactile pressure is just very soothing It's the same reason why when we're upset that we want to hug, it's the same reasons why all those things really work or using lycra blankets around their bed to kind of give them that hug while they're laying there. And so doing a lot of those like heavy work kinds of activities right before bed is really helpful. Tell me what you mean by heavy work, because that's a a phrase that most parents It's just more OT. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's basically just using all of their muscles and- being able to get more pressure through all of those receptors to kind of calm down the body, basically. So it's doing things like just pushing and pulling and like we love to end up combining. Have you ever heard of blow pins? Oh, like the color things? Yeah, like it's like a marker thing and then they have to blow through it and Mm. then like they can make a different picture. And so it's kind of combining like that deep breathing and that heavy work because they're having to use so many of their muscles. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, basically heavy work is just having to use all of your muscles. Yeah. A lot of my clients who I mentioned heavy work too, and then I give them examples. They're like, oh, you mean so like when my child like pushes our wheelbarrow back and forth across like the yard carrying heavy rocks, like they're actually doing something good for them. Like, yeah, they're very wise because they're yeah. very wise in getting the stuff that they they need. <laughs> yeah. Oh, completely. And then doing, getting in like small spaces is very relaxing and things like that too. And so, well, making forts is like something that so many kids do and it's so good for them because it helps, we use the term get regulated where like they just feel calm and grounded. Mm -hmm. And so it just helps that small space to like feel just cozy and you just, you feel more relaxed and, and you just naturally do. And so reading underneath the bed or in the closet or, you know, inside of a fort or like putting a tent over their bed can be really relaxing. Oh my gosh. Candace, is that why I like to read under my covers? Like still as an adult, like when I get into bed, I go under my covers and read my book. I'm probably sure you do it because it's just really relaxing to your body. Yeah, I I love it. That's so funny. Well, and I think that it's always funny because you're like, oh, that's why I always do that. (laughs) Like, Because I know like I can't stand not wearing a long sleeve shirt. It drives me up the wall and I just need that pressure on my arms. It's so funny. Oh, I think that so many kids struggle with this too. I always have a really big increase in the questions I get from parents about like getting dressed in the morning when the seasons change. And Mm -hmm. I like, I know it's because kids who've been in shorts all summer or in short sleeves all summer now have this new sensory experience of pants and long sleeves, or as they move out of winter and into wearing shorts and t-shirts again, like there's Mm -hmm. always, I get like a flood of questions about that. And I guess so has so much to do with like the sensory input of a different oh, yeah. of clothing, you well, know, and having to transition to something different after you well, had gotten true. used yes. to it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And then of course, like incorporating those things, like we talked about, like having relaxing music or doing meditations before bed is just really helpful as far as calming and 
you know, just getting a kid ready to be able to go to sleep too. Yeah. Okay. There's there's tons of things, but no, yeah, I know we could talk about this forever. I do have one question that comes up a lot from parents too about oral needs. So chewing on clothes, chewing on nails, chewing on anything they can get their hands on and how to approach that with kids, especially with kids who have rejected jewelry. So I'm saying jewelry as in like jewelry with chew at the beginning. And for those of you who don't know, it's a whole thing. You can find pretty much anything in silicone form that kids can wear on a necklace around their neck to chew on. But a lot of the folks that come to me have already tried jewelry and it's not working for them. So like, do you have any recommendations for those kiddos who clearly need some sort of sensory input that they're not getting, but don't want the jewelry piece of things. So when I see a lot of those kids, like I really look at them in kind of a detective, I guess, kind of a thinking because whatever behavior that they're doing is really giving me clues onto what it feels like for them. And so when they are trying to chew, that tells me that their body doesn't feel right. Like there's something that they just need some like deep, heavy pressure. They're trying to get their body to feeling in a better place. And so the other part of that is that so many parents will also tell me that their kids can like chew right through the jewelry. Like if they're really like seeking out that, it's amazing. They say that they like, and they do, they make them super heavy duty, but like these kids, like it's amazing (laughs) how much they are trying to chew. And so I really am just thinking, how can I get them the best regulated that we can. And so they're not even going to that to even Mm. try to use it. And I'm also looking at when are they doing it? Like, are there certain things that tend to, you know, ramp them up where they have to start chewing? Like, are there certain times of the days that you're starting to notice it or certain activities? And then that can kind of help me problem solve on what we might need to do and change. And then I usually just go to just a lot of that depression, and especially if they're wanting a lot in their mouth, that is exactly the kids that are like eating yogurt out of like a crazy long, crazy straw for breakfast and to try to like basically get that deep breathing and that like calming all, you know, Interesting. to try to help and like incorporate that into stuff they're already doing too. Yeah. Just what I'm hearing you say is that first of all, like understanding that the chewing, the need to chew is not the problem. It's a symptom of something else and it's an indicator. And then looking at the picture holistically. So rather than focusing on either stopping the chewing or giving a replacement for the chewing, I'm looking at a way to create a context and an environment and meeting other needs so that chewing doesn't become necessary. Yes. And I feel like so often, you know, I think that you're like, oh my gosh, my kid is chewing on everything or they're tearing up their shirts and like, I got to stop this. And so you look on Pinterest or wherever you look and you're like, oh, this jewelry or this strategy or this do this. And you just start trying all these things. And then parents get so burnt out because they're like, I've tried everything and like nothing is working for my kid. Right. And And that's like frustrating. It is. And that because you're trying to treat like if you think about this, like a virus, like you're trying to treat the fever, right? Yes, cause, you know? Yeah. And so I feel like that's what OT does is helps you get to the root cause, right? Like that's what an occupational therapist is trained to do. And they're beautiful at it and wonderful. 
and kind of help your family. <laughs> well, thank you. I, I know it's pretty great, but I know I'm pretty biased. So, <laughs> oh no, like it's something that, you know, like we put it off with my daughter for probably two years longer than we should have because I had all this stuff. Like, I'm an expert. I should be able to do this. I have my PhD, like just all of this, like ego stuff that just got in the way. And it got in the way of my relationship with my kiddo. It got in the way of her, like, optimal development. And so, like, finally, when we, like, you know, just decided to just man up and do it, you know, like just put on my, my big girl pants and do it. It's been so helpful for our family. And I know that OT has been life-changing for lots of other families too. Well, I think that's so true of a lot of parents though, because you have a kid and you're like, I'm their parent. I should be able to like, should know what to do. And I think that it's important to understand that it is okay to like ask for help and to gain information from other people that this is what they do all day, every day. Like, you know, and you will learn so much from using those people as resources and whether it's OT or whether it's a behavioral specialist or a counselor or whatever, like you can just help your child so much if you're kind of just open to wanting to learn too. Yeah, I think too, like we put so much pressure on ourselves as parents to be all, end all, know all kind of being for our kids. And especially when it comes to like their social and emotional like development or like some other aspects of their physical development. Like we have no problem if our kids are really sick and they're not getting better, we have no problem going to a doctor. If they have a toothache or having some kind of issue with their teeth, we go to a dentist. But it is harder to think about like, okay, so there's these other areas of our kids' life and development that we're also not experts in. And we might need to go and get support, right? We might need some more information, you know? Yeah. Basically what you were saying is it comes down to a mindset shift of it's okay to have to get help in these areas that people usually just said, oh, they just have ants in their pants or they just, you're not being a good parent because they have behavior problems. And like just knowing and like giving yourself credit for the amazing job that you really do as a parent and then just being open to learning and wanting to help your child just have an easier time doing things for sure. Absolutely. Well, Candace, I really appreciate your perspectives and how you've made things so clear to us. So Candace, thank you so much for being here with us today. I really appreciate you and all the amazing work you do with families. Well, thank you. It's been my pleasure. It's been super fun. Thanks so much. Okay. So thanks for listening today. Um, Remember to subscribe to the podcast. And if it was helpful, leave me a review that really helps others find the podcast and join us in this really important work of um, creating a parenthood that we don't have to escape from and creating a childhood for our kids that they don't have to recover from. And if you're listening, grab a screenshot and tag me on Instagram so that I can give you a shout out. Um, and definitely go follow me on Instagram. I'm at Laura Froyan PhD. Um, that's where you can get a behind the scenes look at what balanced conscious parenting looks like in action with my family. And plus I share a lot of other really great resources there too. All right. That's it for me today. I hope that you keep taking really good care of your kids and your family and each other, and most importantly of yourself. And just remember balance is a verb and you're already doing it. You've got this.